Welcome to Missing Bits, the podcast featuring amputees and their stories. Today I have the pleasure of speaking to John Hilton. John is 61 and has been married to Sandra for almost 40 years, has three daughters and eight grandchildren, and that's bloody greedy if you ask me. John has been an amputee since 1982 following a motorbike accident and is a peer support volunteer with Limbs for Life. Welcome, John. Thank you. How's Thank things, you, Gary. How's things today in our national capital? Uh, it was terrible this morning, but it's nice and sunny out there now. It's, uh, it's quite humid here. We had, a, we had a boiling hot day on Friday, and uh, we've still got a bit of humidity in the air, and it's just enough to be uncomfortable. Yeah, we don't get much humidity here. It's, uh, uh, we're not uh, near the ocean. So, uh, in, in fact, we, we have uh, what we call a, um, a swamp box on the roof, uh, right. an uh, evap- evaporative cooler to cool the house down, so, yep. uh, which actually introduces humidity. Okay. Oh, if, if it yep. was humid, you could just blame the government. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Canberra did it. <laughs> <laughs> so what do, what do you find interesting about remote control planes? Well, well, um, it's. I think it's the skill that you need to. Uh, well, I'm a handyman at heart. I love doing something with my hands. I love building things. I love making things. When I retired, um, uh, my brother was heavily into model aeroplanes, so I thought I would uh, take it on as as a sort of a building thing. But then I got involved in a club here in Canberra and um, a fairly sophisticated club where we have a, a synthetic runway and a clubhouse and all sorts of things. And um, uh, they have a an instructor who taught me to fly. And... Um, it's it's just very interesting to have a uh, a plane that you've built with your own hands, um, uh, maybe a two meter wingspan. These aren't tiny planes; these are these are big planes. They do a lot of damage if they hit something. So for old um, people, that, old people like me, that's about six foot. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep, that'd be right. Um, th- something that you can only just get in the car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, I go out there, um, at, well, every Saturday and um, and some other days as well and um, uh, practice my flying. And it's just it's just very relaxing. It, it, well, it's tense and relaxing, if you understand what I mean, because when you've got a plane, when you've got a plane up in the air, you have to concentrate on it and, and watch it. But the fact that you can get up there and you can do loops and rolls and, um, it, you know, and have a bit of fun and get something like that back on the ground without um, uh, suffering too much humility when you crash it, it's, um, it's, <laughs> it's good. Uh, and you do crash a few, unfortunately. I would imagine so. Gravity has that effect on things up in the air. Uh, it certainly does. But I, I mean, I've crashed a couple, but uh, I, I've managed to repair them. But I have seen some some uh, big smashes that there wasn't anything but splinters left. Right. Do that? Do they do drones as well, or is it just planes? Uh, some. Um, oh. There are people at the club who do drones, right. um, and um, and I've actually got a drone myself, but I really only use it. it, it I really only use it for photography, um, uh, but that's uh, um, you know. I, sorry, I have to digress. I have to tell you a bit of a story about the, about ahead. the drone. I bought a DJI drone, uh, called a DJI Mavic Air, 
and uh, and I bought it to take to Vietnam with us earlier this year uh, to take um, aerial photography. Um, and the plan was to buy it, spend a month or two uh, learning how to use it, and then go to Vietnam. Um, and as soon as I bought it, I got it home and tried to use it, and I kept getting error message, and I was three, four weeks of trying to use it, kept getting error messages. It said, um, uh, you have to calibrate your compass. You are near a, a large metallic or magnetic object, and so move the drone away and calibrate the compass. Oh. And I even I even contacted DJI and said, what's going on? And there's a, there's a bit of stuff online about having to calibrate the compass. But I worked out what the problem was. My genium, my oh. genium prosthesis oh. <laughs> is, of course, is, of course, a large metallic object and it's magnetic. Yes. <laughs> so, so, strangely enough, and the way you turn the drone on, you have to be, it has to be in your hand, right? So yes. um, I can only use the drone when someone else is with me and they can walk 10 feet away and turn it on for me. Wow, <laughs> That, that, that needs to go in the manual. <laughs> it was quite funny, really. But uh, it, the fact that it took me a month to work it out was um, even funnier, I suppose. I, I, I don't know that I even would have worked it out. I would have thrown it away in, in, in a very bad mood. I almost got to that stage because it, it was clearly too late for me to take it to, to learn how to use it and take it to Vietnam. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, I, my grandson has a lot of fun with it because I take him now with me when I go flying the drone and um, and he gets to fly it as well. So. Cool. I saw, yeah, a, I saw a great video online of um, a guy flying a drone inside his house um, and the last, <laughs> thing, the last thing you see is a flying cat and then it goes black. <laughs> yeah, that would be funny. <laughs> so, how how good is it to be a grandparent? Oh, look, um, I it is absolutely fantastic. So, um, our I have to say that in retirement, our grandchildren are our lives. Um, yeah. uh, so, I've got three daughters and eight grandchildren, five grandsons, uh, three granddaughters. They all live well. My eldest daughter lives four houses away. Um, my uh, second eldest daughter lives in Crace, which is probably 10 minutes drive. Uh, and the youngest daughter lives in McGregor, which is probably two minutes drive. Right. Um, and so we see pretty much all of them, um, it, you know, almost every day. Uh, they're dropping in for afternoon tea or, or a couple uh, get dropped here uh, at eight o'clock in the morning, and we take them to school. And but but they're just so much fun, and you can give them back. Yep. Yeah, I've um, we've we've managed to score two grandchildren this year, our first two, and uh, okay. it's, it's absolutely delightful. Um, mm. and, and the truth is that you can give them back. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good. As it, Good to watch them grow. I mean, and you don't have the responsibility that you do of your own children, but you can watch them grow and and you know help them develop. And you know, we, ours range in age from nine down to zero um, at the moment. And um, and yeah, they're just an absolute lot of fun. Yep, they certainly are. Yeah, you're you're big into DIY. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, tell me, tell me about getting stuck on a roof. <laughs> Look, um, I, uh, I can I can speak from experience and say that as an above knee amputee, it's a lot easier to get on the roof than it is to get off the roof. Right. <laughs> and that that might sound funny, but um, it you, you you climb up a ladder and you just roll onto the roof, but it's. Um, you know, I've, I've been up on a few. I, you know, get up and, like I said, I, I, I like to do that sort of stuff. And um, I, I remember once where I, I, I got up on the roof to, I think it was to install or install a roof vent. Um, you know, those oscillating things. Sure. And uh, and I did that, and then went to get down, and I'd never been up on that roof before, and. I couldn't work out a way to roll myself around to 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 safely get get some part of me anywhere near the ladder. Um, so I called my wife and we talked about it. And in the end, we had to work out a pulley system based on a a, um, uh, a, a you know those toilet vents that come come out of the ceiling, um, okay. and they 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 vent the toilet uh, you know higher and away from. Uh, away from people and um, I had to set up a pulley system around that to actually allow me to hang myself far enough over the over the uh, eve to get onto the ladder (laughs) but you know I'll I'll give anything a go my my philosophy is I would much rather learn a skill and do it myself than to uh, just hire a, a plumber or a or whatever to, to come and do it. So um, I, I remember once we we wanted to do some repairs and changes to a balustrade uh, on our veranda once. And um, so my son-in-law and I went and did a 10-week night course at, um, at, at Tech uh, in welding um, just so that I could do a small job at home. I now know how to weld, and I've got my own little welder. So if anything needs to be done, I can do it. Cool. So I've, I've spent a lot of time, you know, um, learning how to do things. Um, it, now it's partly from having an interest in doing that sort of thing, but you know, when I was younger, it was a case of if I didn't learn how to do it and do it, it didn't get done because we didn't have the money to do uh, to pay anyone to do anything like that. So. Um, but, uh, but it's just something I, I really enjoy and I, I get out there and, you know, I've renovated two houses um, and uh, I've just, uh, yeah, I, there's not too much I won't have a go at. Yep. It's good. Where did you grow up? Um, my father was a, um, uh, was a school teacher um, in, in Victoria and... Um, uh, the, the way school teachers develop as a career, I suppose, is that they have to move around from school to school to school. Um, and uh, he made the decision to do it by country schools. So um, I, I can't tell you that I grew up in one area. Um, in fact, I um, throughout my childhood, I lived in four towns that started with M and four towns that started with B. Um, and, 
We had those uh, Belbray, which is up towards uh, Albury, uh, Belmont in Geelong, uh, a little place called Merrigan, just outside Kyabram. Uh, I was born in Morwell. Um, we lived at um, uh, a little place in the Dandenongs, Menzies Creek. Um, and so, so I've been around, but the, the places that I probably spent most of my time were <clears throat> six years in Merrigan, um, which, is, as, as I said, it's nine miles south of Kyabram and 20 miles north of Shepparton. Um, so I spent six years there before we moved to um, uh, Melton, um, where my dad was the, the school principal at Melton South Primary. Uh, but I didn't go to school there. I, I caught the train into St John's College uh, okay. in Um So, yeah, I've, I've been around, and, and unfortunately um, it, it means that I get itchy feet a lot. So um, I... Uh, we have tended not to stay in the same place or the same house uh, for too long, although we've been in this house now uh, eight years, which is some record for us. But um, but yeah, I've been I've been everywhere, man. Uh, which yeah yeah, there are some disadvantages to that because you 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 leave a place, you've got to you lose all your friends, and you've got to go and make new friends at a new place, but. Yeah. Um, you know, I've certainly certainly been around uh, most areas of Victoria. Well, Luke, we we share a school there, the old St John's College in um, Sunshine. Yep, that's right. I I went to St John's College. I started in um, uh, Form One, and uh, and I did uh, HSC in 1974. Um, yep. And. Yeah, and my my elder brother Tony was there as well, and my younger brother Mark. But um, seventy four HSC, which is now VCE. Um, seventy four. Yep. I started at St John's in seventy five, and we we moved across town in seventy seven. So I was I left there in Form Three, but it was an okay. yep. interesting experience. It was a big school. Um, yeah, it 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 was. Um, I. My recollection of my school years is, you know, I probably wasn't all that interested in school anyway. So um, uh, I I did my HSC and I I tried to go on to uni after that, but no, I I was I lost interest in studying. But yeah, um, uh, yeah I I probably wasn't as dedicated as a student as I should have been, mm. and you know, I honestly would have rather been other places than St John's, but. Uh, uh, but are, are not not other other schools. I mean, you know, down the baths or something. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I I can't rave about it when I was there. But you know, I just did my schooling there, and and that was it. Yeah. And, what did you want to do when you left school? Well, um, the 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 main thing I wanted to do uh, was I wanted to be a mechanic. Right. Um, and uh, the, the, sadly, my father being a, uh, a principal, there was absolutely no way he was going to let me leave school in year 10 um, and go and do a mechanics apprenticeship. So um, uh, th- that's what I wanted to do, but that's not what, what, I, what I did in the end. Sure. So I was, pretty, I was pretty much left um, like I... I 
just needed a job, and you know, I was never, I was never out of a job from the day I left school. I, I did plenty of work. I, um, um, you know, I've done all sorts of things. I, I built some um, uh, bucket seats for the XB Falcon at wow. the Ford production line. Um, I delivered fish bait for Mowing's fish bait factory in uh, in Footscray on the Maribyrnong River there. I know. Um, <laughs> uh, but I've had, um, uh, you know, I, I went to uni for a little while to do uh, accounting or economics, um, but it, it wasn't for me. So um, uh, in, in the end, my decision was to go uh, to to take the year off, and um, and I would was I would do what my parents wanted me to do, and that was to go to teachers college like. Um, most of my uh, other brothers, I've got, I've got four brothers, um, and uh, so most of them entered in the teaching profession, and that was my my plan uh, for what year would that have been? That would have been 1976. Yeah. Uh, but interestingly, I, I got a scholarship to go to teachers college in 1976, but I didn't get a place. Okay. The uh, government at the time reduced the quotas because they reckon they had too many teachers, so I didn't get a, a place. And, you know, in hindsight, that probably wasn't a bad thing. I'm not sure how good a teacher I would have been. Sure. Um, but uh, I, uh, I ended up getting myself a, a job with the federal government. Um, that in those days, you'd have to go and sit a test and, and just wait till your name came off the list based on how well you did on the test. Right. And um, I got a, a position uh, probably about nine months after I sat the test. Um, and I started work at um, the uh, materials research laboratories in Maribyrnong, just down there near, near where High Point West is now. Yep. And uh, so I just started as a as a clerk class one there, and um, and I was a public servant for the rest of my life. And I have to say, I've I, I've had um, lots of exciting jobs within the public service. So the public service is good because if you don't like the job you're in, you can you can you know apply to go elsewhere and and so on. And um, and I did, and I, I moved around, and I moved from materials research labs to the Department of Education, Federal Department of Education. In, um, they were in St Kilda Road at the time, 450 St Kilda Road. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I was a tease assessor. I, I, um, I don't know whether you remember the old uh, tertiary education assistant scheme, oh, okay. which is now, I think they call it Ausstudy. Yeah. Um, so I assessed applications for um, TEAS uh, benefits um, and uh, it was during my period there that I lost my leg. Right. Um, after I'd gone back to work, my wife and I uh, decided that we needed to do something. Um, uh, North Sunshine wasn't the most wonderful place on earth back I can, in those I can days. agree with that. Yeah, and um, so we made a decision uh, that um, we wanted to be uh, uh, made a decision to move to Canberra, but that if I couldn't get a job in Canberra by September, um, that we would uh, move to the other side of town and build a house out at Wonturner. Turner. Okay. Um, and uh, anyway, as things turned out, I was offered a transfer to Canberra in August. 
and um, I, I was on temporary transfer for quite a few months, so Sandra had to stay back in Melbourne, and I um, just had to camp with with co-workers uh, in their houses for a few months. But right. uh, then I was then I got a, a permanent position um, up in Canberra, and so we moved the whole family to to Canberra, cool. uh, and that would have been you know, 1984-ish, I think it was. And we've never looked back. Look, it, it, it's been absolutely fantastic. And career-wise, um, uh, moving with um, uh, the Department of Education to Canberra, um, I fell into IT systems development. It just, ha- just happened that I knew how some of the systems worked very well. And so they seconded me to, uh, to write system specifications for a new system that they were developing. Okay. And uh, as a result, I fell into uh, IT systems development, and um, and look, it's it's but I really enjoyed uh, my career from from there on, and oh. um, you know, I spent the last ten years as a director in the um, uh, environment department and um, managing a, an IT outsourcing contract that was probably worth fifty million. Goodness um, me. Uh, along with a, a few other things like voice services and security and so on, so yeah. um, it was it was good. Yeah. Where did you Where did you meet Sandra? Um, we uh, it, uh, Sandra's a St Albans girl. Okay. Um, so um, I was living in um, uh, uh, Monash Street in Sunshine, as I recall, over the road from the pool hall, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. But um, the, I, was, um, I was friends uh, with a guy who was friends with Sandra's brother. And um, uh, I got to know Michael, Sandra's brother, um, uh, well, and we became quite close friends. And uh, I used to you know, go over to Michael's place and Sandra would always be there. And, and one thing led to another and, well, here we are today, almost forty years later. Um, yep. But uh, you know, we've had we've had some um, some interesting experiences along along the way. But um, you know, I mean, I personally think Sandra's had the hardest of it. Is if you can imagine when I had my accident, you know, it was easy for me. I was just lying in hospital. But we had a, a daughter who was eight months old. She learnt to walk in hospital. Yeah, and. Um, you know, it was it was pretty hard, but we've come out the other end, and I think we we both deserve to be pretty proud of where we're at. So speak, speaking of your accident, it's a lovely lady. Sorry, Gun. <laughs> yeah, um, I would have to say the same thing about my wife. No, I don't have to say it. I, I just say it to everyone. My wife is amazing. Um, yep, so, so is mine. Speaking speaking of your accident, take us through 1982. Uh, it's actually 1981. Okay. Um, so, um, uh, so let's let's go back to the 28th of August 1981. It was a Friday. Um, it started off as a a bad day all round. Uh, my father-in-law um, lived in Phillip Island, and he'd he'd come up uh, the day before to do some things um, uh, in town, and he'd stayed the night with us. So um, he got up in the morning and um, 
uh, and his car wouldn't start. So um, I was out there helping him get his car going so he could drive back to Phillip Island. And um, so we got got him going and I was I was a bit late and I got my motorbike out, to which I used to travel to and from work. Um, and, of course, it wouldn't start either. <laughs> Being August, I suppose it was cold, whatever. But anyway, cut a long story short, I didn't get to work until about 10 o'clock that morning. So... Uh, being a public servant and working flex time and doing the work that I did, which is just assessing applications that have been submitted to me, um, I had, well, I'd made the decision to stay back um, late that night to um, to make up the time that I'd lost uh, due to what had happened in the morning, um, which meant that I, I left um, St Kilda Road about um, six o'clock at night, which was about an hour later than I usually go, um, and really it was uneventful. But it was a it was a cold night. It was um, it was spitting rain, not heavy rain, but just enough to to create a a, a, a veil of rain, I suppose, on on the uh, helmet. And um, I was a block and a half from home, uh, going down Furlong. Not sorry, not. McIntyre Road, North Sunshine, um, and on that road, it was an unlit street back then. I think it's close enough to a freeway these days, but it was an unlit street then. Um, and there were small factories, you know, like furniture factories and panel booths and so on on the right-hand side, and houses on the left-hand side. Um, and being, by the time I got there, it was probably 6.30, 6.40 at night, so it's dark, and... Um, and I, I was travelling along, probably doing maybe 45, 50 kilometres an hour, and the car in front slammed their brakes on um, and put their right-hand indicator on to turn right into one of these factories that were all closed. Um, now, that wasn't really an issue for me because I was only going slow and I wasn't too close to them or anything, but I just manoeuvred the bike around uh, the inside of them um, and there was a uh, a 1974 Holden Statesman, dark green, parked on the side of the road without lights on, with nothing, right. parked, parked terribly illegally, but um, uh, that didn't matter. But, but I so again, I wasn't going that fast, so it didn't really matter. And I, you know, in in the split second that you've got, you think, um, oh yeah, I, I'm, I can get past this. I'm not going to hit it. So I sort of laid the bike over as normal and um, and I rode past the car and as I rode past the car, I heard a bang and in my mind I thought, oh no, I broke my highway peg because <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had highway pegs on the bike so when you're out on the highway, you could put your feet up and rest on there yes. and I thought to myself, oh damn, I've broken the highway peg. Um, the next thing I knew, I was sliding sideways down the white line um, on my bike and um, uh, I came to a stop, and um, and I, I had no idea I was injured. I, I, I didn't feel any pain. I, uh, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I had no idea I was injured. And I, I, the bike stopped, and I was lying straight across the white line. And I looked in both directions, and there were cars coming in both directions, but from quite a way away. And I thought. Well, this isn't a good place to be. 
um, being an unlit street. So I um, I went to crawl across to the side of the road, and my uh, left leg, left foot was caught in the chain on the back of the bike. So um, I just pulled it out of the chain and crawled across the road. Obviously, in my mind, I must have known something was wrong, but um, I just crawled across to the side of the road and lay down, sort of. I guess I, my head was all a bit messed up and I, I didn't really understand what was, what was going on. And um, I would have been there for probably 10 minutes um, before anyone stopped and uh, the, a guy from the Motorcycle Riders Association stopped and uh, came up to me and he asked if I needed a hand. And I said to him, oh, look, just give me a moment to get my head together and you can help me lift my bike up and I'll ride it home. And he said, uh, I think you'd better have a look at your leg. Um, and I looked at my leg and I had four inches of femur sticking out of my wet weathers. Ouch. Um, and uh, that's, that's a good reaction, but I had no feeling. I, I was not in any pain whatsoever. Um, and uh, I just sort of laid back and... And this guy was was really helpful. He um, he went round the corner and got Sandra, who obviously had an eight month old baby. And um, Sandra came, and they called the ambulance. and And the only time I experienced pain the whole time was when they stretched my leg out to put it in a brace. Um, uh, the the brace that they put those sort of things in, and I just. Um, felt and heard all of this flesh and stuff go yeah. all back together, and that that hurt so bad. I'm surprised I didn't pass out. But oh. um, but that was the only pain I felt at all um, that uh, that evening. Um, turns out that I had broken my left leg in five places. So what it, what had happened is my knee had actually, it wasn't my highway peg, it was my knee that had hit the tail right of the car. Right. Um, I don't know if you know those sort of the HQ model of the Holden States and had that tall tail right. Yeah, that's right. And my, my knee had gone straight into the tail right. And um, uh, so I'd actually broken my tibia, my fibula, my um, kneecap and broken the, the head of the femur into quite a number of pieces um so uh anyway i was off to hospital and um i'd had like from there that was the 28th of august 81 and my leg was amputated on the 4th of november 82 right um so it was 17 months between having the actual accident and uh and my leg being amputated so um I had uh, 13 different operations uh, over that period, um, and uh, but in the end, I developed osteomyelitis, which apparently was caused because I I uh, crawled across the road and got a whole lot of road grime in the end of my broken femur. Yeah, in the bone. Um, yeah, that's right. So, um, and you know, then then we start a, a whole another story about amputation and recommendation of amputation um, and as well as that the, I, I had a cardiac arrest on the table at about operation number seven I think it was um, um, that, that was a bit 
scary, but um, I'll, I'll quickly take you through it. Go. Um, I I had a big plate in in my femur, um, and uh, the doctor it, it wasn't holding correctly or something, and the doctor had decided to go in and and fix it a different way. Um, and I had this agreement with him that whenever he took hardware out of me, that he would leave it, and and I could souvenir it, um, and he would leave it on my chest. It's pretty bad when you've got a, a relationship uh, so close with your orthopedic surgeon that you have an arrangement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, so I went in to have this plate taken out and these other screws put in, um, and they knocked me out. And uh, the next thing I knew, my I was sort of starting to come to, and my my surgeon was um, was at the end of the bed, and he had my feet, and he was shaking me and saying, "John, John, wake up!" And um, uh, I looked up, and I had bottles of you know there would have been at least six bottles in the air, and things in my arms everywhere. But all what I was interested in was my plate that he was going to give me and I looked down there's nothing on my chest and I, I said to him where's my plate and he said he said John we didn't get that far right. um, and what had happened is over the um, the previous six operations um, I had developed an allergy to a drug called Pentothel which was a common anesthetic drug they used in the 80s um, but when they looked back, they could see at the previous operation I'd had a slight reaction when they gave that to me. Right. Um, but but then when they gave me it this time, um, they uh, I I had suffered an immediate cardiac arrest and um, they had to uh, restart me and put all these you know all these different fluids into me and so on and um, and you know having having. I guess died on the operating table. I can tell you, I don't remember remember a thing about it. Yeah. Um, except that, except that I had the worst headache I have ever had in my life, and all they would give me was Panadol. Oh dear. <laughs> um, so that that was that was rather rather um, scary, and then they had to stop treatment, um, and I had to go off and and have all sorts of different tests so that I could work out what what was the component in the drug that that caused it so that I they could not do it again um, so that that was a bit scary um, yeah. and and I guess the other the other one related to that was when the time came uh, and my uh, surgeon recommended amputation um, I'd been you know I'd been going on for 17 months and the the Femur refractured, right? And um, so I, I was actually in Perth. My auntie had given us the money to go to visit my brother in Perth for a holiday, and when I was in Perth, it it, it rebroke. And I called him, and he um, and told him what had happened, and he said, "Well, you know what I'm going to suggest now, aren't you? Don't you?" Uh, and I said, "Yes." So we stayed in Perth for another two weeks. Sure. <laughs> Well, you know, I wasn't in a hurry to get get back and have my leg amputated, but um, sure. but but when I came back, um, I went to see the the surgeon. Jonathan Rush was his name in um in Collins Street. He's a lovely bloke, and um, he said, "Look, 
John, I recommend amputation, um, but I don't want you to take my word for it. You, you know, I want you to I want you to go and see other people and see what they say as well. So he actually sent me. He made urgent appointments with five um, of his colleagues as orthopedic surgeons and sent them all of the detail. And I went and visited each one of those doctors um, to see what their um, uh, decision was. And um, it was totally unhelpful because three of them said amputate and three of them said we can save it. Um, So um, in the end, I'd had enough. I I wanted to get back to to life. Um, I was always going to have a... Uh, an almost completely stiff knee, um, and uh, so um, I. Well, yeah. We, between the two of us, Sandra and I, we we talked about it, and you know the all the alternatives that they talked about meant another at least another two years in treatment, and, and I didn't want to do that. So, um, but uh, so we made the decision to amputate but but therein um, was another story and that is that back in 1981-82 there was absolutely no support for amputees nothing you know I had a thousand questions you know what prosthesis will I have how will I wear it what what problems will I have Um, what about phantom pain I had all these questions and no one to to bounce them off, and um, uh, and and that that was really worrying for me. You know, it's sort of like yeah, go and have your leg chopped off, and then just see what happens. You know, sure. um, and luckily my wife Sandra, who worked at the Department of Social Security in Sunshine at the time, had had a friend who was an above knee amputee at work, and. Um, and she was lovely. She came over to our, our place on a Saturday and she stayed there and answered all of my questions. You know, she would have been there for maybe four hours and and she answered all of my questions and told me a whole lot of other stuff, stuff that I wouldn't have even thought of asking. Um, and uh, and that, that really was the clincher for me because then I was able to go into amputation being being much clearer about the road from there. Um, so anyway, I've waffled enough on... No, you're projects, fine. No, there's no such thing as waffling on our podcast. <laughs> it's just stories. Um, mm. So um, I think that highlights how important our work as peer support volunteers is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, like I said, I... Um, uh, I was a peer support volunteer for um, the Eden Monero Amputee Support Group. Um, I worked with a, um, uh, a guy called Brendan Brendan Morrison, um, and we used to visit people in, in the hospitals and in the rehab units and so on. Um, unfortunately, Brendan Brendan died, um, and the hospital chose not to continue the service. Right. Um, uh, I even though I went to them and said I'm happy to take over, um, and, and this was prior to Limbs for Life, um, as far as I'm aware, um, and uh, that was a bit disappointing. But um, but as soon as I found out about 
Limbs for Life and their peer support volunteer program I was in. Um, I I sent Mel an email and said, look, how do I get involved? Because I know there's no one in Canberra doing that that sort of thing at the moment. Um, and she sent me the details. I went to Sydney and got trained in Sydney because they weren't having training in Canberra for a few months. And um, so I, I, I went up to Sydney and got trained. And um, look, I... I um, I guess I'm trying to give back, but um, just I, I know what it was like when I had all these questions and and no one to answer them, and uh, I just like to be able to go and say, here I am. I you know I I've been an amputee for thirty something years, and um, you know if you've got any questions, you know fire away, sort of, sort of thing, yeah. and. Um, and and it's good, and even even you know on an aside from that, osseo integration, um, osseo integration is very new, and uh, but I had it in 2013. I think um, Glenn had it in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had to go to Sydney for uh, a five year review with my surgeon, and um, I went into Macquarie University Hospital where they do the osseo integration surgery and visited all the patients who just had osseointegration to see if, well, just to say, well, here, look at me five years on and look how well I'm doing, um, but also to answer any questions. Um, interestingly, one guy didn't even, he'd had it done, but no one had explained to him how the prosthesis is donned and doffed with, after osseointegration. Okay. So I was, I was able to show him all of that as well. So I, I just... Um, you know, if I can help, um, yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I feel much the same way. If I can help someone, then then I'm available, and there we go. Mm. That's right. Yep. So how how was rehab and returning to work? Um, well, <laughs> um, the <laughs> you got to remember we're talking about 1981, 82. I remember it well, yeah. Um, and uh, the as far as the federal government was concerned, um, the only people who lost their legs were um, military service people. Um, and so if you became an amputee, the only place you could go to get service um, would be the Repatriation Artificial Limb and Appliance Centre. And for rehab, you would... Rehab was run at the Repat hospitals. Good old relic. So, yeah, good old relic. Yep, yep. I almost got a job at relic once. But, um, <laughs> uh, no, seriously, because I did a stint in Veterans Affairs and yeah. um, in, in IT there, and um, and a job came up in in relic management, and I uh, I applied for it, but I didn't get it. But but anyway, so um, I, I did my my rehab um, in. Uh, Heidelberg, and so my leg was amputated on the 4th of November. I think I was in hospital for maybe two weeks, um, and then they sent me home, um, but I had to attend uh, Heidelberg every day from then until about Christmas, and um, then there was a break over Christmas and then returned again in um, uh, sometime in January um, at 
which point, um, you know, obviously they were fitting me for, for temporary prostheses and, uh, and everything. Um, but, it, look, I, I found the rehab that, that they did was very good. Um, they, they told you a lot of, lot of good things. They, um, and they taught you how to avoid certain issues. And, you know, like, like I, I thought, uh, you know, rehab was a very positive experience for me. Um, I did find it interesting looking at the people that were there and how different people um, uh, handle their, uh, their amputation. Um, and if I can tell you just a, a quick story, the, mm. there were, were, were two people, um, or perhaps three people really, but, but two individually for this story, um, that, that struck me uh, at rehab. Um, one was a, a guy who was 55 years old. Um, keeping in mind, I was about 25 at the time. Um, and this guy was 55. He was a heavy smoker. He'd um, had um, uh, cardiac, not cardiac, um, cardiovascular issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he had to have his, his leg amputated um, uh, because of different um, sores and so on. Um, but when he, when he um, went in for surgery, they said, well, you know, we're, we're going to take it off below the knee, but we, we, we have to sort of come back to where we find good circulation. And when he came out of surgery, they had amputated mid-thigh. Um, and um, he, was, he was absolutely devastated. And um, every day in rehab, his family would all come around and sit around the bed and cry, and he wouldn't do his exercises. And, you know, it, it, was, it was sad because he, he, um, it was like I think a lot of people think when they're, they're facing amputation, well, my life's over once I lose a leg or, or lose a limb, the life's over. And, um, uh, and that certainly was the attitude of his, him and his family. But at the same time, there was this other guy there who was 90 years of old and at years of age, he was the sprightliest bloke you've ever seen. He had his leg amputated below the knee. I, I, I can't recall why. Um, uh, but he, he was not the slightest. He had, didn't have a care in the world. His only wish was to be able to go back to the, to the pub where his mates were. I think it was in Brunswick somewhere. And he wanted to go back to the pub and be actually able to stand at the bar and have a drink with his mates because for years he hadn't been able to stand at the bar. Right. And he was, he was in and out of rehab like, like, <laughs> and, and 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 he wasn't the slightest bit concerned, you know. And and it was interesting to me to see the the two different sides. I mean, uh, I, I I was very lucky. I mean, I didn't suffer any psychological issues or depression issues. I guess it was more because I had the support of Sandra all the time, and um, you know, I. I didn't. I guess I didn't need to worry, but um, uh, but but these but these two they were, they were like chalk and cheese, and one was you know forty years older than the other one. Um, uh, but you know that that struck me uh, struck a real chord with me. And there was another young guy. Uh, it was quite sad, really. He was uh, um, uh, in the army, 
um, and his uh, parents lived down um, southern south, what would you call it, south western Victoria, um, and, but he was uh, in the army in Queensland. He rode his motorbike home to visit his parents and he, he, um, it, he had a motorbike accident. He, he ran off the road and into one of the irrigation channels um, and he lost uh, an arm and a leg. And um, and he was he was a bit of a psychological wreck, and I sort of could understand uh, the way he was, and um, yeah, I, I felt for him. So, um, but you know, rehab was good, and I um, I I got out of rehab in uh, early February, I think it was, once I'd had a, a prosthesis, a temp, albeit a temporary prosthesis, which was just made out of plaster of Paris. Um, and in those days there was no microprocessor knees or anything like that. Um, so you basically just had a hinge and a, and a, a rod and a foot, um, and a plaster of Paris socket. And, um, uh, and I was back at work for, I think it was mid February. Nice. Um, yeah. And, and look, it was, it was great to, to get back to, back to my wife, I suppose. Um, of course, there was a lot of appointments and a lot of prosthetic fittings and all that sort of thing. Um, and when I eventually got my uh, first permanent leg, um, it, people would laugh these days, but it was literally carved out of a piece of wood um, and it had a bolt as, as a hinge for a knee um, and it was just covered with um, uh, skin-coloured fibreglass and that was it. There was, That's right. There was no no smarts to it whatsoever. No, it's um, just a just to put on and get you around. That's all it was. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. My so, my, um, my first leg, I had I had my foot off in 1968. Um, yep. My first process was made of wood. Yeah. Well, um, including the foot. Oh, well, obviously. Uh, the foot. <laughs> the foot was a was an old sacked foot, but um, I've I've still got it in the wardrobe. I, I pull it out occasionally. Yep. And, yeah, I don't throw my bits out. Yes, yeah, so I, I pull it out occasionally and scare people with it, and I can't, yeah. wait, I can't wait to scare my grandkids for the first time. I oh, look, my my grandkids, they they call it Granddad's special leg, <laughs> and um and they, there is it's it's absolutely normal to them, and they um uh they don't even think twice about it. And my um, my memory of um relic. I, I attended the Relic in South Melbourne in Sturt Street. Um, yes, yes. And I started going there in, well, I guess late 1968 when I was five, going on six years old. And growing up, I thought I was completely unique because I didn't see any other kids. All the people there were old people. When I, old people in a five-year-old's mind is anyone over 25. Um, That's quite but I, I just assumed that I was unique, that I was the only one, because I never saw any other people young, young enough to to, come, to to be like me. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think the, the, the government thinking in those days was probably right. If you think about it, in 60s, 70s and 80s, most of the people they would be dealing with were people who were injured at war. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and I guess over time... Uh, you know those those people 
died off, um, yeah. for want of a better description, and uh, and are being replaced by um, by uh, us uh, civilians who uh, have amputations for various um, uh, various reasons. For sure. Now tell tell me about your yeah. youngest daughter in a hurry to greet you when you get home from work. <laughs> that was that was in about. Um, I, I think about she. She was born in '86, so that would have been in about. She wasn't at school, so it would have been about '89, '90. Um, I got home uh, from work, um, and uh, I walked in the front door, and from the back of the house, you hear "Daddy, Daddy, Daddy," and she came running towards me, and uh, she was just so excited to see me. She completely forgot about my artificial leg and my prosthesis and the fiberglass and everything like that. And she ran up and wrapped her arms around me and smashed her head against the uh, <laughs> against my fiber, fiberglass socket and <laughs> and fell in a heap on the floor. <laughs> she didn't knock herself out, but it wasn't far off it. Um, and uh, we, we all still talk about that to this day. That. Um, you know, they. I guess you got long pants on, and they forget about it. And sure. you know, but uh, yeah, we we all sort of joke with her these days about that. So yeah, it was funny. And when when did you when did you learn to fall with style? Um, that that was very early in the. Uh, I mean, I I don't have to tell you, but uh, I mean, every amputee will tell you that. Um, uh, you've got to learn to fall, and um, you know it's all about uh, you know as soon as you know you've reached the point of no return, it's all about looking for a soft place to land. Um, and uh, this would have been probably the first or second Christmas we'd um, we'd been in Canberra, and um, in the lounge room we'd set up our Christmas tree and everything. It was, it was Christmas morning. And um, we had the Christmas tree there with all our presents and, and everything under it. And we were going going into the lounge room to open the presents. And in the middle of the room, we had a glass-topped coffee table. And uh, as as I did then, and I used to always do in a socket, but, you know, I only put my leg on to go out. And um, so I was getting around the, crutch, uh, around the house on my crutches. And um, I walked... Uh, I, I went into the lounge room and caught one of my crutches on the edge of the carpet going from the tiled area to a carpeted area and straight away I knew I was gone. I knew I was going down. The trouble was I was going down straight into this glass top coffee table and, and I, you know, I, I'm thinking, no, no, I can't do that and I quickly... It, this all happened in a split second, but I quickly threw the crutches away and bent my good knee and just jumped as high as I possibly could. And I did this beautiful pirouette right over the top of the coffee table and ended with a somersault on the other side. That's fantastic. And, um, and I missed the coffee table completely. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you have to be really careful, the, the, you know, looking for a soft place to land. There was another incident in the same house, so it would have been in the same year that uh, it happened. I we, we had a wood heater and a half around it, and I tripped on uh, on the half, 
and um, I I knew I was going, and and I thought I did the right thing. So I I'd sort of turned as I fell, and 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 landed with my back against the wall, which I thought was pretty good. But <laughs> the trouble was, the trouble was, I'd hit the wall, and I slid down the wall, and in the wall was this little electric heater <laughs> with two knob two knobs on it that were actually shaped uh, like knives um, and it took two big gouges out of the back of, out of out of my back Ouch. which I still have I still have the scars now from um, and uh, so yeah you do I, I have learnt to fall with style yeah. and they, they I, I don't to be honest I've had osseo integration for five years and I've not fallen in that five years nice. um, and uh, so um, I but Everyone, you know, my kids could tell you lots of stories about having fallen over. You know, I fell over once in the front yard on the driveway, um, and uh, I had shorts on, and my because I wore a suction leg, um, it broke the suction, and my leg went flying one way, and I went flying the other way. Um, hopefully, there weren't too many neighbours watching. <laughs> My, my my best ball was um, when I was about 14 playing cricket and uh, they tossed me the ball and I and I came in off my long run and as I arrived at the, the popping crease to, to release the ball, landed on my right foot and it broke through the shaft. Um, and oh. I just went flat on my face. And because, yeah. I rolled, because I'd rolled my arm over, the batsman had a free hit at it basically and the ball was just rolling down the pitch slowly to him. And he was walking towards it, and I popped my head up, and I said, "If you hit that, I'm going to punch you." <laughs> and he stopped it with his foot and walked back to the crease. <laughs> that was it. That was the end of my day. Yeah. yeah. No, I have to ask um, you. I have to ask you about the 1999 bathroom incident because it's all in capital letters. Yeah, that was that was um, my my worst ever incident. Um, and uh, I, uh, I'll set the scene for you. I, um, uh, it was school holidays. I'd taken the day off, and we were taking the girls to the movies. And um, I don't know why I did it, but we we had a bathroom at either end of the house. We had our ensuite at one end of the house, and the girls' bathroom at the other end of the house. And for some reason, I. I, I must have gone down to use their toilet and gone into the bathroom to wash my hands. Again, I was on crutches, but um, and we was people were sort of rushing around getting ready to go out to get out to the movie. And um, I went into the bathroom, and my eldest daughter had just had a shower, and there were there was there was water everywhere. Um, the, the whole bathroom floor was wet. Yeah. Um, again, again, I didn't think anything of it. And I just moved over to the basin to, uh, to wash my hands. Um, and as, as we all learned to do, I, you know, tucked the crutches underneath my arm and put my hands under the water and, and washing my hands. And one of the crutches slid out from under me. And so I, I quickly sort of threw the elbow out to bring it back in, um, and unfortunately, in doing that, I knocked the other crutch out 
from underneath me. Um, and so here on my throwing, broke my elbows out to try and pull my crutches back in. And in the process, my um, foot slipped on the wet floor and uh, I pretty much uh, headed for the ground like a sack of potatoes. And I landed on the side uh, if you can imagine, I came straight down, but I landed on the side of my stump, the outside of my stump, yeah. and fra- fractured my neck of femur, um, wow. uh, which the, the, this is a, the neck of femur on my amputated side. I reckon I, I must be the only person who's actually managed to do that. Um, but uh, it that was that was shocking. The the pain and the you know, I went into um, shock straight away. I was on the floor just shaking, and I knew I didn't know what I'd done, but I knew I'd done something really bad. So um, uh, my daughter was planning on becoming a, a nurse, so she she sort of went into full nurse mode and called the ambulance and came and got blankets and did everything. But um, yeah, I ended up. Uh, the ambulance came. They took me to um, uh, Woden Hospital. We were actually living in Womboyne at the time. I'm not sure if you know where that is, but it's no. uh, it's out in the it's out in the bush, about a 40 minute drive out the back of Queanbeyan. And um, so I had this 40 minute ambulance drive, and um, uh, they gave me uh, morphine when when they picked me up. But the the road was so rough that they had to stop halfway there and give me another shot of morphine. Um, but I, yeah, I had to go to hospital. I had a had a plate inserted, uh, plates and screws inserted into it, and um, uh, it took eight weeks for it to heal. So I was on crutches for eight weeks. Although I went back to work within uh, maybe three, but obviously I couldn't wear a prosthesis. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, apart from the pain, you know, it's the swelling and and everything. And um, so I, I was back at work within maybe three weeks, but it was eight weeks um, before I could bear weight. And then, of course, um, with with all of what had happened, my stump had changed shape. Yeah. So um, when I tried to get my leg back on, I, I could get it back on, but it, it didn't fit really well. So I had to go and have a new socket made as well. So... Um, but that honestly was the, the worst fall I've had and I hope to God I don't have another one of those. That I was hope so too. that was bad. Good Sorry? I hope I hope that doesn't happen to you again too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that that was that was that was, that was very bad. And, and, and interestingly one of our neighbours um uh came past while the ambulance was there and she called Sandra and said, What's an ambulance doing at your house? And um, Sandra told her uh, what had happened, and uh, and she said, "I can't believe it." She says, you, "You're out there on a tractor, and you're up on the roof, and you're up on ladders, and you're doing all this, and you fall over in the bathroom." <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit ironic, isn't it? It, it, it is, yeah. But uh, but yeah, that was that was um, dreadful. So um, anyway, it's all all over with now. So all in the past. Hmm. So what what's next for John Hilton? Oh, um, well, well, I'm retired, so I've been retired for a few years now, um, and 
where we, we've done a fair bit of travelling. Um, we bought a caravan and travelled around Australia. We did uh, 22,000 kilometres around Australia. Um, we try and do one overseas trip a year. Um, and we went to um, Vietnam and Cambodia this year. And mm-hmm. next year, next year we're doing um, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Awesome. Um, but at the moment, where uh, our our daughters, um, I wouldn't say need help, but they appreciate the fact that we're here for them, for the grandkids, particularly with the ages that the grandkids are at. Um, they they need a bit of help, and so we're we're happy to put our hand up and say we'll we'll be around here, and um, and you know other than when we travel, we'll we'll do what we can with the grandkids. Sure. And look, it's that's a lot of fun. We don't see it as a chore. You know, sometimes when you when you have a, you know a few of them over a period of time, you get tired, but it, it, it's still a lot of fun. Um, but but what else is in the future? Well. Um, we do plan to, when we went around Australia last time, we um, did it over a period of eight months because we had to be back home for our second daughter's wedding. Um, but we want to do it again because we know there's a lot of a lot of stuff that we missed. So, oh, there's so much stuff um, there. Oh, look, we spent, you know, seven or eight months doing it and not... The, the amount of stuff we missed or we didn't get to was unbelievable. So we're planning in the next few years to buy another caravan and we're going to travel around Australia the other way, that is across the Nullarbor and up the, the West Coast. Uh, but we're going to take two years to do it this time. Um, and rather than trying to be back in a hurry, um, what, what we're going to do is fly back home. So if if we need to be home for a family event, we'll we'll just jump on a plane and come home, um, uh, uh, and leave the caravan and the car wherever we are. Um, but but that's that's really it. I I enjoy building model planes. Um, uh, I've got a, a a car that I like to look after. I've got a, um, a, a Ford Performance Vehicles GT that I like to. Um, look after, sure. um, and uh, and yeah, I, look, I, I'm so busy. I, I might be retired, but I I've got a list of things that I need to do, and um, you know I you know I would never be able to find the time to go to work these days. <laughs> um, so I'm happy with the way things are now. I mean, eight grandkids are a blessing, and um, we've got three lovely daughters who've got got their lovely families and they all live nearby um so uh you know life uh life doesn't get much better than that absolutely i've been asking just just before we finish up i've been asking everyone um for some some words of wisdom or something that got you through hard times or something you can share with someone who may be a new amputee or is maybe not even an amputee um well you know, even though I'm even though I'm an amputee, I didn't really uh, suffer any any bad times, as in you know, like psychological issues, issues or depression. Um, but you know, to be perfectly honest, 
um, there is always someone out there who is worse off and probably a lot worse off than um, than than you are. And um, I find that it's best to focus on what's positive about about uh, something yeah. uh, or about anything about life, and you know. Uh, don't waste your time on the negatives. It's you know there's too much too much fun to be had and things to do and things to experience. Um, but focus on the positives and and ignore the negatives. Um, that that would probably be my take home message. That's an awesome message, Mark. Thank you. So and, and, and honestly, uh, uh, sorry, just yeah, go final. On. Amputation is not the end of your life. In fact, I'm I I'm amazed. At, I'm amazed at what I've been. I've managed to do, you know, post amputation. That you know, I'm I'm just amazed that uh, at, at, I guess my life and what I've done with it. And and I'm just uh, you know things are happy. And you know, I don't even think about the fact that I'm an amputee. I um, my my wife loves watching the um, the medical shows on on TV. Um, you know the the real the real stories, not the not the pretend ones. Um, and and often often the um, the doctors will talk about their patient. Um, and they'll say worst case scenario is amputation. And I think to myself, no, worst case scenario is death. Yep. Yep. And and That's amputation right. amputation is, you know, it's up there with bad. Um, and it changes your life, but it's not the end of your life. Yeah, I think I think changes is the is the um, uh, is is the word the key word in that sentence of yours, then, Gary. Um, the it, it um, it's it's your new normal, yes, right? Um, it, it, you're not worse off than everyone else. It's just your new normal, and you know if you knew the problems that every other person you you meet on the street has, then you know you'd realise that you're not that not that bad off. Absolutely. Um, can, can I say one more thing? I can't. Yeah, of course. I, I can't really let the interview go without mentioning um, Munjud El Madiris. Yep. Um, he he is um, my osseo integration surgeon, and I know that uh, Glenn uh, mentioned Munjud um, in his podcast as well. Um, but I've never come across a more amazing man, and. Uh, and how he can spread himself so thin, <laughs> I just can't believe it. When when I went in for surgery, he gave me his business card with his mobile phone number on it and said, "Don't you ever hesitate to call me if you if something's wrong." Um, I've I've had to call him on four occasions, um, and his phone was always answered. Once, not by him because he was in surgery. Uh, but the phone was answered in the surgery, um, and he gave me the answer to my question um, uh, across the uh, the surgery room. Um, and even once when I had a problem, he he had an impromptu um, consultation at the Canberra Convention Centre at a at an AMA conference he was at. Um, he he has changed my life. Um, I'm sure Glenn would agree that he's changed Glenn's life and yep. he's changing people's lives every day. And 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 he is just such a nice guy. Um, and uh, I, I just want to say that I, I appreciate everything that he's done for me. And without him, I wouldn't be where I am today. Sure. 
I think we're we're very lucky to have him with us in this country. And if you know his backstory, um, it's even more remarkable that he's here. Um, I think if there's anyone in the world that could be possibly selfish with his time, it would be that man. And yet he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. Like not not. Um, we're, we're, we're so so lucky. Yeah, not not only that, Gary. I, I was up there in um, in October for my five year review, and uh, I and a, another Canberra Osseo integration patient happened to mention to him that we get together about once every three months, so all the Osseo integration patients in Canberra and have dinner. And he said, next time you have it, let me know. I'll come down. And um, he's he's flying down to Canberra on the 10th of January after work just to have dinner with his patients. Um, That's pretty cool. It just, yeah, I don't know how he got, how he finds the time. Um, but, but look, I, I look up to that guy and, yeah, you're right, if you know his backstory, um, yeah. uh, it's even more amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'll just, I'll just mention that um, a couple of times we've mentioned Glenn without any reference. <laughs> so I just want to tell everyone that Glenn is Glenn Bedwell, who we featured in season one and is also an osseo-integration um, patient. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up yep. in case everyone was sitting there wondering, who the hell is Glenn? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So to all you loyal listeners, thanks once again for being here. If you would like to share your story, please get in touch with me, just like John did. I promise to make it as pain-free as I possibly can. Go to our new Facebook page where you can message me directly or send through an email. Don't forget to join our new Missing Bits Facebook page where the conversations can continue. If you like what we are doing, share it with friends, download it, review it on Apple Podcasts. All these things help get our stories out there. We all have a story to tell about our Missing Bits. Thanks so much for your time, John, and for sharing your story. It has been great getting to know you, and I hope next year when I'm up in Canberra for the conference, we can maybe catch up for a coffee or even a beer. Yeah, thanks, Gary. That uh, thanks very much. And yes, I even though I haven't booked, I'm definitely going to the conference. And uh, and yeah, we'll we'll uh, we can catch up with Glenn as well. Excellent. Okay, thanks, Gary. No problems. Thanks for your time, mate. Okay, bye bye. Have a great night. You too. See you, mate.